So hello and welcome to Flip the Switch. This is the podcast dedicated to the multifaceted and multi-talented. Today we're joined by Dan Tzu and this is a conversation I'm super excited to talk about. I feel like there's a lot you do mm-hmm. and what we do on the podcast here is actually get you to in- introduce yourself. So I'm going to ask you the question, Dan, what do you do? The hardest question. I know. <laughs> uh, what do I do? I guess uh, top line is I'm an educator and event producer, creative director. Um, but that kind of spills into all kinds of things. Um, I'm a facilitator. I'm a program manager and designer. I'm a poet. I'm a dad. I'm a, yeah, a lot of hyphens in there. It doesn't stop, does it? No, I mean, <laughs> it, it continues. I mean, I've been, yeah, an event producer for about 15, 20 years now. Um, and it's just kind of evolved from there. And I just feel like, I like doing a lot of things and a lot of things happen my way. And I think part of what we do is kind of these multi hyphenates is say yes to things Mm. and, and develop our skills from there. I love it because I'm the same being busy is like where I thrive. And I think what I want to do today is just start a bit from the beginning. I think if we can kind of like go back a little bit, tell me more about this kind of opportunities for young people and like where that all came about your love of it. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's something intrinsic in there, but ultimately it came from something as basic as realising that I was organising my mates to go to a rave or to go to the cinema or a birthday party or the park and actually coming to a point where I was like, well, what if I took all of this energy that I put and all of this love into something which could build me a career? Mm. Um, And so I would be going to live music gigs maybe six, seven nights a week. And then at one point I was like, I think I can do this better than others. Wow. So I tried. And you did well, clearly. (laughs) I think so. With that as well, like career and choosing a career. So it came from an experience. Mm. Did you ever feel pressure from society, culture, family, did you have any of that? It's something that I touch upon a lot in this podcast, just because it's born out of my story as well. Like I felt a lot of pressure um, from society and culture. Like I come from a South Asian culture and I did go down the law tradition route. And it was really for me kind of this like doctor, dentist, lawyer option. It kind of felt like, but I wanted wanted to kind of touch upon whether you felt ever pressure and you had to disrupt and kind of break out the box. Oh, a hundred percent. Like all of that is true. So Mm. as a second generation immigrant, my dad came from Hong Kong. Uh, he was an actuary mm-hmm. um, over in the UK in, in about the 70s. Uh, he started his journey here. Um, previously, he'd lived in Nigeria. Mm. Um, and my mum was from Singapore. Um, and so as a second generation immigrant um, to a Southeast Asian family, um, it was very much about business and management. Yeah. So I ended up, um, you know, I did well at school, at GCSEs and A-levels, and I kind of assumed or rather it had been assumed for me that management and business was the route Mm. and then I got to university uh, I went to University of Warwick and I studied management sciences and I just didn't like it it was very accounting based Mm. Um, I looked around I mean this is interesting because I see my identity very much as rooted in uh, as a Londoner ultimately and that's that's kind of the diaspora of what makes up me and so weirdly, when I went to um, university and I sat in those management sciences uh, lectures, there was just loads of bespectacled Chinese people, oh, okay. obviously others as well. Yeah. But weirdly, where I should feel at home on a kind of superficial level, mm. actually, I was like, 
these aren't my people. Yeah. And it wasn't because uh, ethnicity uh, wasn't common. It was actually, you know, the things that make us tick. And so what ended up actually happening was I messed around in university. I kind of fell into the music scene and actually I became a drum and bass MC. So I, I oh. used to be a UK garage MC just bedroom yeah yeah like light stuff and then when I went to university we started collectively putting on the drum and bass events um, and they needed an MC and that's where my music journey began because essentially my first gig was in front of about a thousand people wow um double time MC into drum and bass um because my hero was MC Skibbity if anyone knows oh about gosh, him love that. and um and then I just kind of fell into the scene and caught the bug for live events you're kind of similar to me because at uni I was a law student so I was like attending the lectures not interested at all and then I just run into like a UK garage baseline <laughs> event and be DJing at it and you know like, yeah literally like I would have my like backpack ready to go my USB and like the difference between them it is so night and day but this is the this is the thing right is that for people like yourself and myself we have to form an identity mm. through almost through other means yeah. and where we don't necessarily connect with our heritage, perhaps, or certainly speaking for myself yeah, for sure. or uh, religion or whatever it might be, is that actually we find our identity. So for me, um, pirate radio culture and sound system, as a result, sound system culture yeah. was the place where I felt most at home. It was the mm. place where I didn't have to be what people expected me to be or the stereotype of who I should be. Um, and actually the thing that resonates through me literally and figuratively was bass. Wow. And so that was the space where I felt most at home, where I could be myself. And it was ironic because whether, you know, in academia or whether in a club, I would be the only person who looks like me. Perhaps you felt the same as yeah, well sure. when you were coming up is that um, it is, you know, that uniqueness and that that kind of, loneliness in a way yeah. is kind of what I'm really proud of in terms of code switching mm. I'm probably most comfortable when I know that I'm the only person who looks or speaks like me yeah. in a particular space because I feel unique mm -hmm. um and so that and I found that with pirate radio culture as well it was a space where there were no faces you know it was just audio and I would you know I was obsessed by pirate radio and yeah. I could tell you all of the pirate radio stations that existed in North London between <laughs> like you know whatever it was like 95 and 2003 I'm kind of letting on my age now but yeah. like that was really important to me because ultimately they became uh, I wouldn't say they were my friends but they were like my companions like music was my companion and it made me feel safe and it made me feel welcome yeah. um, no matter what I look like or what I sound like or indeed what I played. It's so true because that's what I fell in love with radio as well because it's so inclusive. Yeah. Like it's very intimate, like the microphone and you and same with DJing as well. Back then, I found like DJing, it doesn't, you can't see the DJ really. Mm. Now I know it's changed a lot and like they put the DJ front and centre. But before, like it didn't matter what you looked like. It was about the music that's playing. It doesn't matter who you are. Anyone yeah. can kind of jump on. Exactly. And that's where you connect, don't you? You feel like the sense of belonging. Yeah. But then one thing that I found really interesting now is um, music is like using that to find my heritage. Mm -hmm. So like, I've been exploring like Bollywood and mm -hmm. Punjabi Garage and like finding the middle ground for me as well, because I don't feel necessarily that I fit in completely with the South Asian side myself, but the middle ground of like the birth here in London is where I really kind of fit in. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's something really, there's something special about London and I would, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would say that about their native city and yeah. so on, but there is something about that, 
uh, you know, it's a bit of a trope, but the melting pot of yeah. of London, where actually, um, truthfully, it's about what you play, not what you look like. And there's something very liberating about that, um, which also kind of tied into my want to explore other cultures. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like I went to the ESEA, the East and Southeast Asian Meetup, Meetup, um, just last week, just found the corner here in St. Pancras. Um, and it was a revelation for me mm. because it was suddenly people who looked like me who were working in the same industry as me. And it's weird that it's taken 20 years to kind of come back, actually longer than that, mm. to come back round to where I feel comfortable in a space mm. and also finding other people who have been through that similar kind of uh, discordant journey through their identity and music. So, mm. yeah, I it's interestingly, on a slight kind of multi-hyphenate tangent, yeah. there's actually my poetry and my writing kind of passion and especially exploring, exploring race through oh, wow. writing and poetry um, that has made me explore and uncover and examine my own identity um, more closely. And tell me more about that. So what was that a way of like telling your stories and kind of um, did you share it with the world as well? Or was it something for you to write poetry for yourself? I weirdly, because of my experience with drum and bass, mm. I see myself more as a performer, as a writer, but I get more joy out of the writing. So the writing is okay. a very private thing, mm. but I yearn to perform it. I'm not like other people who like hold it close. Yeah. Um, and I feel comfortable on the stage. So actually what ends up happening is I use poetry, spoken words specifically, mm. as a vehicle for exploring issues around race. Because for East Asian person to talk about race comes with all of its complexities and mm -hmm. often falls on deaf ears. But when you put it in a kind of creative frame, mm -hmm. um, it allows me to be more free, more mm -hmm. brave as well. But also it allows me to say things to people who otherwise wouldn't listen. Oh, wow. So similarly, you know, going back to the DJ analogy, like my, my favorite music to DJ is Dancehall mm -hmm. and Bashman, mm -hmm. a bit of Afrobeats, a lot of other stuff besides. I'm a UK garage kid as well. Like, you know, I grew up on hip hop. So, you know, it, it changes. But with poetry, there's kind of a singular focus there. And it's about picking what your focus is. And mm -hmm. so in this case, I was like, well, I could talk about my identity. And one of the reasons I started up Lyrics Organics, which we'll talk about in a yeah, bit, I'm yeah. sure, um, was less to, I want to put on an event. It was actually, I want to be a poet. How do I... Do I do pedal the open mic circuit for two or three years and then become average? Mm. Um, or do I surround myself with people who I look up to and think are amazing, give them a space right. um, and then kind of take notes that way? Wow. Um, and so, yeah, so a lot of what I've done has come from this proactive route. It's like, how can I get there quickest? Wow. Okay. That's su super interesting, actually, because learning from the best is a great way to do it. And I really like how you have this kind of theme of using your voice definitely you're a performer in like lots of senses in terms of like music letting that kind of tell a story too because I think that does doesn't it like yeah. we're so like emotion is so intrinsically linked when you like perform and you take people on a journey I think it's beautiful yeah was that form of release as well did you find with just like music and like DJing in general yeah like I would say that if there's any one of the many many things I do that brings me the most amount of joy when yeah. I'm in the pocket it's DJing oh, like wow. because okay. it as you know it gives you that freedom to express yourself and it's because you're playing other people's tunes typically as well, mm -hmm. it also means that you don't 
have that kind of artist ego pressure that you put on yourself where you're like this performance has to be amazing so you mm. so that you have diminishing returns when you perform because you're always like cross-examining your own performance whereas actually when you're DJing the 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 relationship there is about creating that middle ground which is ultimately the dance floor mm. um where you can kind of share experiences and curate experiences so ultimately the thread that runs through everything I do mm. as well as kind of creating spaces for people yeah is curating spaces mm, and I love that that you've managed to create a career that does that the way you do it as well like you include a people that weren't necessarily included which I think is really really important and give them the chance that they necessarily didn't have and I think that brings us to a really good point where we can now talk about your business Lyrics mm-hmm. Organics and I think we should flip the switch and actually talk about the founding side and talk about Lyrics Organics and Rum Shack. So let's start, where did Lyrics Organics begin? Because that seems to be like a natural evolution, it seems. Yeah, for better or worse, Lyrics Organics has basically become a body of work which represents all of these multi-hyphenates in many ways. Yeah. Um, so it was it started by accident in a way. Like I said, it was something I was going to loads of gigs at the time and felt like I could do something better. So in right. 2000 and in about 2006 or 2009, I was putting on gigs with various collectives that I'd kind of met some in Northwest London, some in North London. Um, and I decided in 2009, I was going to start up Lyrics Organics as a live music and poetry event that explored the lineage or the intersection of folk music, spoken word and hip hop, because wow. they were three things that I really believed in. And I was seeing a, a through line that wasn't really being expressed. Spoken word in hip hop is fairly obvious, but when it comes to um, folk, it's less obvious. But to me, it equals musical language of disenfranchised communities. Historically Mm. and for centuries, we often think about hip hop as this 20th century music form. But actually, if you think about folk music, it's existed for centuries before that um, on our own doorstep. Um, And there's, you know, history of... um, you know, resistance and protest and disruption that exists within that anyway. So essentially what we did was we wanted to try and create an event which brought those together into the same space and then take money out of the equation because money was always something that was quite icky to me. Like I'd had Mm. kind of financial troubles um, previously. And so for me, what was really important was to really get to the core of the message. So what we decided to do with Lyrics Organics was to choose a, a... a charity who we felt like we could genuinely make a difference with. So mm-hmm. ultimately, we, cho- we chose MSF, mm-hmm. uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, who were mm-hmm. Doctors Without Borders, who are wow. international humanitarian aid organisation. And the reason we chose them was fundamentally because they spend 80 plus percent of their donations on the front line, whereas the majority of charities will spend maximum 50 percent. The rest is on office buildings and marketing right. and so on. So that kind of didn't really sit with me. It felt like if we were going to make a difference, we had to do it properly, even on a small scale. The flip of that was I had a full-time job at the time. I was working for Transport for London, doing just like a standard office management admin role. But that took the heat off. It meant that I didn't have to make money. And the reality is when you're putting on gigs, you know, the first gig was for 70 people. And it happened for about a year. And then it got bigger and bigger. And it's still relatively small scale. 
But what it meant was we were um, creating spaces where both the audience and the artists all knew they were coming in for the, for the same reason. Okay. Um, and we got quite lucky. We um, supported some really big artists from early. Um, Ed Sheeran was one of them. Mavic Sabre was another. We did a collaboration with Carlo in 2010 with his hip-hop Shakespeare company. Mm. Um, and in, I think it was like 2011 or 2013, we were mm. working with Kay Tempest at the Rumshack at Glastonbury. Mm. You know, all of those took their own trajectory. And so what ended up happening, and me being particularly kind of proud about my ability to talent scout, because I, I came to a place before Lyrics Organics where I had a conversation with a friend in the music industry and I was like, do I put on events? Or do I do A&R? Oh, okay. And I, I, I often quote this to him and he, he regrets saying it now. But <laughs> um, he said, if you want to retain the love of music by going to gigs over and over again, don't do A&R. Because at some oh. point you'll just get burnt out from it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, I'll put on events. Um, and as it evolved, in 2011, we got um, our Glastonbury first Glastonbury Festival stage, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, a partnership with MSF. Mm -hmm. um, 2013, we got given our own stage, which was called the Bum Shack. Yeah. And whilst all of that ha was happening, we did um, kind of an outdoor tour of like 23 dates for London 2012, where mm -hmm. we did this immersive kind of crazy poetry, beatbox, um, live music um, kind of immersive experience in Westfield and in Victoria Park and mm -hmm. outside the Lyric and Hammersmith and all kinds of places. And then we started to realise quite quickly that the work that we do transferred quite seamlessly to education. Oh, wow. And I had some okay. really great friends um, within the organisation who performed with us a lot, who were already doing a lot of teaching and a lot of working in youth centres. And they were like, you should just come down with us um and see what you think and I was like I don't think I can teach like, I don't think I have anything to say like yeah. what am I going to do um and long story short I realized that actually there was a space for me and actually what I had to offer was very different from what other people mm. had to say in those spaces and once I could conquer things like that fear of being in a room with people who uh, are either out of control or yeah. maybe not paying attention to you once you got over that um, I was in the pocket and so I haven't looked back since and so ultimately now Lyrics Organics is both an education company doing work with the Roundhouse or around the world with British Council or Cardboard Citizens or yeah. whoever as well as an event company and it's quite curious as a business because frankly we don't make loads of money and mm. certainly the events don't make us lo loads of money but they are our kind of loss leader which is very visible mm. which brings people back to our kind of education programs right. um, and that's where the majority of our income and expertise lies at the moment. Firstly, just wow. <laughs> there was a lot there to back. Like, I wanted to ask just in general, like, do you ever look back and, like, the amazing stuff that you've done, all those things that you just brought up, it's incredible. Is Thank it something you. that you feel really proud of? Yeah, well, do you know what? Like, it I, is um, wild. <laughs> it, it is pretty wild when I think about it and I say it out loud. I'm kind of used to saying the story. Yeah. But, like, whether I'm present and actually, like, realising what's happened, I kind of pinch myself. Now... On the one hand, it's always been intentional. I've always seen Lyrics Organics as a 10-year project. Mm. Um, and once we get to 10 years, I felt like we would have achieved something and have a legacy. And now we're in like whatever it is, 14, maybe 15, 14 years. Mm. But actually, more recently, we've been rebooting our website 
and I've been teaching myself editing to do our showreel, our first showreel in all oh this gosh, time. Wow. And so I've literally been going through all of our archive of content and being like, oh my gosh, this is a lot. <laughs> so yeah, I'm incredibly proud, but I think I'm probably most proud of the people that we've brought on yeah. the journey with us mm -hmm. because it's never been about me. In many ways, it's a manifestation of my brain and my being. <laughs> but actually, the whole purpose, as I said, with, you know, like getting my friends together in the park kind of thing, it's always about bringing people together. And I get the most amount of satisfaction, like the most amount of satisfaction from, for example, person A meeting person B in one of our gigs. Or I often get um, the first time I saw Ed Sheeran was at your gig wow. or whatever it might be. Um, and that that alone brings me so much more pride than any money that we make or yeah. any kind of accolades that we may get mm -hmm. because ultimately that's what it was there for is to bring people together and that is the legacy because that's still happening i love that that it's you've noticed something you're good at that helps other people and then just like gone for it mm. and it seems like what you do is you blend quite a lot like mm. lots of the different things together mm. in one like even um like rum shack like it's not just music, right? It's everything. It's poetry. Like I've, I love. I'm a big fan of Rumshack. Thank you. I love Glastonbury, and I love in general like what you've created because I think the artists are big and small, which yeah. is actually beautiful. Yeah. And it's not always the way. Um. So it's nice to see like a real like mix of people on a stage like that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's rare, and you know, I've been. I love Glastonbury. Like. On a par with Notting Hill Carnival, to me, yeah. there's like if I if, if there's nothing else in the world apart from those two <laughs> events, like I'm made. Like those are so so important to me, um, to my development and my kind of evolution. Just mm. like on a personal level, just like realizing stuff and people in the world. <laughs> um, and it was really important that to have a responsibility like that, which people would give their left arm for. Yeah. Um, I treat with the utmost seriousness, and that seriousness is holding the door open for other people. So it, it kind of bothers me when you see stages that book the same artists all the time or uh, can only book emerging artists or only book big artists. And the question was, well, knowing festivals like I do and knowing Glastonbury like I do as a punter, mm. um, what is it that holds someone to a stage? Like you're constantly walking past stages and the idea about the Ramshack at Glastonbury was it's like the best house party you never knew existed. And once you're there, you never want to leave. Because the idea is that the whole thing is seamlessly curated, that you could be there for hours. Whereas in a normal festival, you will bop like yeah, that's true. after an hour or whatever yeah. it might be. Um, and that's fine. That's to like great. I do that almost to a fault. You know, mm -hmm. I could be there for like a ten, 10 minutes of a gig and then 15 minutes <laughs> of another gig and just chase gigs all around Glastonbury, which is exhausting. Mm. But what if you had a home and you knew that everything you saw at a venue um, you would be into whether you knew it or not in fact preferably if you didn't know it and that kind of voyage of discovery which is what makes Glastonbury great and yeah, creating that sure. microcosm at the rum shack so yeah it's it's really important to me but it's 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 as much a kind of personal kind of uh, ambition as it is a responsibility to the culture. I find that you have to notice something to then create something out of it. Like even though things have changed, like you said, um, with representation, 
I do think though there's always room for more, right? Mm. Like even I was on the radio on at Glastonbury, like Worthy FM. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, yeah. with them. Yeah. Oh. Um, but even that, like there was a space for um like people of color weren't really existing in mm-hmm. that on the station. So I was like, why don't we actually dedicate a whole show to them? Sick. Because it's not it's not a thing really. And like Glastonbury Notoriously is quite a white space mm-hmm. and a quite privileged space. Yeah. So it's important to change that, right? Um, but like, yeah, in general, like how have you seen that kind of change over the years and festivals in general, representation grow and evolve? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I lecture about event management, another hyphen, yeah. um, <laughs> at, at, at BIM in West London uh, with kind of undergraduate students. And it's interesting because the music industry, I guess people are getting their dues now. And it's it's amazing to see and it's really important to see. But then the the more it happens, the more cognizant we mm. have to be about uh, what is authentic and what is being kind of co-opted mm. um, for other people's gains. And I don't think there's a right answer to it because ultimately if, if there is someone who's co-opting for, you know, a large kind of corporate organization that's still a good thing it's still representation it's they will have resources yeah. to take that artist or that dj to places or platforms that they wouldn't otherwise have um so it's changed in many ways yeah the dj thing the dj thing is super interesting because there were almost no female or non-binary yeah. djs yeah. when we started rum shack we actually did a big call out in like 2014 or 15 mm-hmm. where we were like this is a problem. So we did a big call out for female non-binary DJs and we got like hundreds of applications and then we started programming them. So we ended up becoming the first official stage at Glastonbury to have a gender balanced lineup in about five years ago, four years ago. Um, And we're hugely proud of that. So I think there's still space to disrupt, but I'm constantly wrestling with this, I don't know, is it insecurity? Mm -hmm. Kind of the fact that things that we've been doing authentically for over a decade Mm. and now commonplace and Um. so you know have we missed out um are we in the right places are people seeing us all of those kind of question marks kind of exist in my head um in quiet moments um but then I always kind of bring myself back to the fact that no one can take that history away and history is is really important and grows in uh, visibility and significance as time goes on. So at the moment, we're kind of quite close to that time of like anyone can DJ anything and anyone can perform anything, yeah. which simply wasn't the case. Like when I was growing up, it was a it was a pretty well-known unspoken fact that there could only ever be one major black female soul singer yeah. in the pop charts at any one time, mm. be it, you know, like... Beverly Knight or Jamelia or whoever it might be Um, and that's I mean it hasn't improved as much as it should do but it's definitely better Um, and so yeah just constantly wrestling with what's right where's our place in Mm. it Um, but it is always evolving and you know Mm. it's also to say we've constantly got a lot of work to do ourselves you know we could be doing a lot more and I'm happy to call it out is mm. we could be programming more queer and non-binary acts at the rum shack mm. and we will do um and I think there are there's just not enough bravery when 
of people saying that until they do it and they can put it on a marketing yeah. Insta post or whatever. Um, but I, th- I like to think that we we lay the ground so that other people can walk it. Exactly. It's like you still have your history. Like that, no one's going to take that away from you. And the stand, even though the standards are getting better, there's still opportunity for you to continue trailblazing. Yeah. And like knowing that you've been ahead anyway, mm. I think is nice that you can test and like in a way you've got creative freedom to kind of tr- try and grow and evolve. Yeah, it's it's such a special place, and I, you know. I wish it to go on forever, but then there's also that thing of like, you know, is that the best thing for the rum shack? And, yeah. you know, how, how do we evolve and how do we kind of take things? And, you know, there's something important about uh, a home that has cult status in a space like that, because you know that every year you go, that's where you're going to meet, yeah. that kind of vibe, um, kind of balanced with the kind of creative restlessness of like wanted to do something totally different. Like my, <laughs> my kind of partner slash boss, Steve, he, uh, he, he runs the common. He basically, he's been wanting to switch things up for a while. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like hold, hold it down for a little bit because yeah. we've got something here and don't rush to change things because we feel creatively restless. There are okay. other people who like that familiarity. Mm. Um, and so, these are often the questions that don't get asked when you're thinking about a, a business, you know, like familiarity. Is that a good thing? Um, you know, if people, you know, is, is it, is it a good thing to be safe? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the difference that we bring in with it is it's a community space where that familiarity is important. Mm-hmm. And then how do you balance that up with, you know, being a trailblazer or whatever? So Yeah. yeah. I love it too. But I think, yeah, that's when you have to push the boundaries sometimes and push yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Because like when you push yourself out of your comfort zone, like you create something extraordinary, I find. Mm. Like when you're just outside, but not like burnt out, like it's that stretch zone, right? Yeah. Um, Where you can play and like test around. But I guess I wanted to touch a little bit upon your journey with kind of mental health and like balancing. Like you touched on all the different things that you do and like there's clearly a lot going on. How do you find managing it all? Like, what does your week, a typical week, like look like for you? Typical week looks. So I'm a I'm a dad now. My kid is uh, five years old, mm. uh, so he's just started going to school, and that's become a major anchor because before that, I was just on burnout central. Like, yeah. I would I would just work like a dog, like all the time as. I'm sure mm-hmm. you or many people listening are all too familiar with. It's so hard to get that balance right because when you love something so much and you want it to succeed so much, if not emotionally, at least financially, it's so important to make it work. You will die to make it work. And often you put yourself in that place. Mm. But I burnt out a couple of times once I got cluster head- headaches, which was basically mm. migraines every day for like three months and it was wild i was like Gosh. on codamol like, like your body was telling you yeah, yeah to... shut down yeah um and then more recently i was we were doing a, a live stream rum shack during lockdown mm-hmm. at union chapel when glastonbury wasn't happening and we did a site visit and then basically i left and i got a phone call from my doctor about blood tests quite urgently mm. and the next thing i knew that two o'clock that morning I had paramedics knocking on my door saying you need to come to hospital right now oh and gosh. i was freaking out a little bit as you would do and it turns out that so i've had a history of hyperthyroidism right. uh, which isn't particularly serious but it's a thing and i've had medicine for it and essentially I had a relapse mm. um and what i've since realized is that relapse is just 
caused by burning out and just working too much. And so my solution to burning out is essentially giving myself space to breathe mm. and treating off time as importantly as work time. And that's mm. really hard thing to do, really think hard thing to unlearn. I'd spent yeah. 15 to 20 years thriving and loving working to death. Yeah. And I love it, but it can't be at the cost of your health. And then when you factor in a kid into it, it's like, well, you know, you don't really have a choice. You've either got yeah. to like be about or you're not about. And I didn't mm. want to be that guy. Mm -hmm. So it's good because essentially how it means I balance my week is I do um, about three days a week um, uh, kind of freelance stuff. Okay. So that could be lecturing, it could be mentoring, a lot of facilitation, some event production, okay. um, some consultation stuff. It really is so varied. Mm -hmm. um, I used to do a lot of traveling, go abroad, teaching event management in um, emerging creative economies like Cuba and Kazakhstan and Ukraine and crazy places. Wow. Um, and then I spend uh, about two days a week um, doing a secure kind of part-time job. Yeah. So recently it's been working at the Roundhouse. I'm not working there in that capacity anymore, yeah. but that was enough to bring me a bit of security. Yeah. And then I spend two or three days just out and out kind of childcare. My partner is also a freelancer. Okay. Um, she's a fashion illustrator. So we kind of split it kind of 50-50 down the middle, which yeah. is works well. It comes with its challenges, like yeah, really sure. does. Um but it's also a lot more convenient in many ways of how you go about kind of managing a family. Mm. Um, but yeah, the TFL experience that I had made me realize that, and this is almost a bit of a tip, mm. is when you're doing something that you love, don't let money be the death of it. I.e., if it's not making enough money, that doesn't mean you should stop. If anything, it means you should go longer. But you need to be able to afford to eat because otherwise none of it's going to happen, none of the above. And so I've realized that if I can get myself into work, which is stable, and it used to be, so with Transport for London, just a standard job, I was working five days a week and yeah. I was doing loads of my own, I was building my MySpace and all this kind of stuff, <laughs> like out of hours, I'd go home like six till two in the morning. I'm just like networking, building wow. my stuff, writing, whatever. And then I was getting cheeky. I was getting so good at my job. I was doing some of that work in work and I was getting, <laughs> feeling smug because I was getting paid for it. And then it was going so well, I was like, I'm going to ask them for four days. Okay. And then I'm going to ask them for three and a half days. And okay. then I'm going to ask them for three days and be paid. And they let you? Yeah, oh, they wow. did because I'd made myself indispensable yes. in that role. Mm -hmm. And so one tactic I have, which doesn't work for everyone, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it's worked for me, is find a job job as and when you need it and get it down, make yourself indispensable and get it down to the hours that you want it to be. Mm. And then you have the right balance. But all of these things take time. It's not like you're just going to walk into a, a day job and be like, can I just have two days a week? I know you yeah. wanted me for four days, but can I just do two days? I balance myself and my well-being by thinking about time a lot. Practically speaking, I, I like going for walks. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to see my friends. I've reprioritized that. I dropped that for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky enough to have friends who understood. But I also realized it was depleting my soul mm. by not seeing them. And I'm now replenishing my soul by seeing them. Good, so I feel yeah. a lot more balanced as a result. And also the thing that I've been doing the most recently, which seems ridiculous, but 
I used to always work at night because that was my twilight hours and all that mm. kind of stuff. Uh, it was quiet in the house and very, very. But now I literally do nothing. I just cotch on the sofa and just do nothing. And that was really alien to me. I had to learn that. I have an ability to be lazy Mm -hmm. by default, but Mm -hmm. I never let that happen for basically 10, 15 years. Mm. Um, And I'm loving it now. Uh, It's like not feeling guilty though. Exactly. I think it's really hard. I think multi-hyphenates in general, we can't stop. We just don't want to either. But then like for the sake of yourself and yeah, you've got a child and a family and friends, like you want to make sure, like it's like the balancing act of like, how can you then find the right balance that, everyone's happy but mm. then you can still be fulfilled yeah it's and it's also about picking the projects that kind of fit your lifestyle like yeah. you know i know now that i don't necessarily want to be doing like a out and out events job i could do yeah. i've got the you know probably got the stripes to do something certainly in the in the music industry or the festival industry but that's not where i want to be and i think it's quite easy to pick the things which are the lowest hanging fruit and then find yourself in this perpetual cycle where you're doing something which is wearing you down. I'm talking like I know like the answer. I don't, <laughs> like I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. But what I have learned is if you pick the things which not only you're passionate about, because let's be honest, as multi-hyphenates, mm. we're passionate about bare things, yeah. like probably too many things. We're like <laughs> overstimulated. Preach. <laughs> yeah, but that shouldn't be the only criteria that you choose things. And I learned that too late to my uh and it penalized my health yeah um and now come out the other side i can say with fairly good um confidence that you can still do the things you love and still have all of those like synapses firing and you just need to choose different projects as a final question Mm. there's a lot of notion of against being a multi-hyphenate and like society doesn't necessarily welcome you yeah with open arms like when you explain what do you do and you're like (laughs) all right, I'll get my list out. Like, there's a lot, right? And they don't really get you. A lot of people don't understand it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, like, you know, someone wanting to be a multi-hyphenate? Because you clearly are a big big advocate of Mm. being a multi-hyphenate and and following your passions. Any tips for anyone who wants to be one? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do wrestle with this. And as the years have gone by, it's been clearer and clearer in a business sense that the the route to money is niche i.e the more niche you get the the bigger people blow up in a way Mm. so if you have a really unusual business that is you know so mystic borek opened around the corner from my yard in in forest hill they basically make borek like and they Mm. they doubled down on it and they made it really really good and they're absolutely killing it right now but no one 10 years ago would have thought a shop that sells one certain type of ethnic food stuff mm. could blow mm-hmm. like that mainstream so there's obviously like a conventional wisdom that says kind of finding a niche and being really focused on that is the one but i don't believe that because i believe that your work-life balance should be balanced yeah. and if you you know people have short attention spans some yeah. people have neurodivergencies which mean that they focusing on one thing isn't necessarily the right answer and i Mm -hmm. think that it's really important to recognize how your brain works and what that um and how you can formulate that into something which is important for me i've always seen lyrics organics as a body of work Mm -hmm. um, and therefore i've seen my own work my professional 
a professional career as a body of work. When you look at it in those terms, it's less about you being a business person and, you know, maxing out on one particular thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm about to develop a business idea which is like has a sole focus and test mm-hmm. that idea that test that hypothesis out Ooh, okay but at the same time um it's i've i've always seen because i never played an instrument um because i was a classic you know i was a good mc but not a great mc yeah you know, all yeah. of those things a generalist yeah yeah i realized that actually i can think of my journey as a body of work in the same way as a visual artist would create an exhibition and they may have different types of paintings or sculptures or installations in the space, but it all represents the same thing. And I think the challenge that we have, for example, in the music industry is that we feel like by diluting that, you you dilute everything. Mm. But my argument is that in the visual arts world, if... Anthony Gormley suddenly decided to create a a painting rather than a sculpture that people would be like, that's amazing. Mm. Look how that painting relates to that sculpture. Look look how it's speaking to the same audience and so on. And actually, my work has always been about having a common thread. And as you identified at the start, it's about creating spaces for young people or breaking down barriers or whatever it might be that is kind of the underlying thread and if all of my work speaks to that then or all of somebody's work speaks to that one kind of true thread that runs through all of it you have to do that work as an artist or as a creative to plot that line that kind of runs through it you can't expect other people to do it necessarily it's like and I don't think we do that enough no. so I really appreciate that advice. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. So thank you so much for thank today. You. Where can we find you and get involved if anyone's listening and they want to hear more about you yeah, and Lyrics Organics? Yeah, so um, you can find me at Off Yellow Radio on Instagram. You can find me as Dan Sue, T-S-U, on LinkedIn. Uh, Lyrics Organics is Lyrics and Organics with the X's, L-Y-R-I-X, O-R-G-A-N-I-X, um, on all the socials. Uh, Rumshack Glasto on the socials. Um, and yeah, I'm about. <laughs> <laughs> sure, we'll see you at an event somewhere or you'll be networking. Somewhere. 100, yeah. But thank you so much. Thank All you right. for having me. <laughs>